probably not particularly insightful to say that we live in a hurting world. I think we all feel that from moment to moment, from time to time. It's not the only thing we feel, of course. But Joel um, brings us into this world and, and makes us mindful of it. And, you know, this can happen on any given day. And on any given day, our news feeds on our devices would say different things. Um, this just happened to be this morning's news feeds. That in Nigeria, just in the past six or seven days, the group Boko Haram, which loosely translated means young girls shouldn't get educated, shouldn't read. It's loosely what it means. Uh, have killed 200 people in Nigeria. And we you know we don't, it, it doesn't really hit us, I suppose, is the way it would if it was happening in Nebraska instead of Nigeria. And I also want to say that my comments here are not religious and they're not racial. They're about hurt. Those were someone's children, somebody's daddy, someone's brother. Or again, this is just happened to be in today's news. You may have saw the story where yesterday, I believe, um, children were required to stand behind kneeling Syrian soldiers. Someone's seven-year-old boy, picture that. Someone's 11-year-old boy was forced to stand behind these kneeling Syrian soldiers and shoot them in the back of the head. And it'll take a whole army of therapists, right, if this were happening in California, a whole army of therapists helping people with PTSD. You know those children are gonna grow up hurt. It hurts, these things hurt. Or bringing it more to the Western world, you know, everybody's wringing their hands today about what's gonna happen to Greece and the Euro and the International Monetary Fund and can it really control this brave new complex world? These things actually hurt real people. Or even closer to home, when a 13-year-old boy rapes a seven-year-old girl on a bus, that hurts. That's somebody's daughter. And there's a whole extended family in elementary schools that they, they feel this hurt. And so what can be the possible, you know, kind of both intellectually defensible but spiritually real rationale for any basis for a quiet, confident, peaceful hope when we're surrounded by such hurt every day. I mean, that was literally just what I found in 10 seconds clicking BBC News or something like that. Well, Joel tells us that none of those things happen in a vacuum. They're not isolated little incidents. Joel reminds us for his own purposes, meaning he was looking at a nation who was stunned by a infestation of locusts so dramatic that it had ruined their whole economy. And a drought that was making both plants and people wither and an awareness that they were under the judgment of God. And so Joel does what prophets do. He comes into the picture and he makes sense of this by saying, none of this is random acts. 
None of this is outside of the purview of the Trinitarian God. Now, I've said this to you before, but it's, I just, it's so important that our imaginations get steeped in this, that a Trinitarian God who started this story is supervising history, and it will come to its divine telos, its end. God's purposes will be completed. That is the only rationale for a quiet, confident, gentle, hopeful peace. I want you to look at your text real quick. In the first verse or two there, I can't remember which verse, it's in the first verse or two. And I want you to just note how Joel gets us into this imaginatively by these very simple pronouns. My people, do you see that? My people, my heritage, Israel, my land. Now, I know it's hard and it can sound like we're just playing religious games or something, but what if Nigeria really is God's land? And Syria is God's land. And it's his heritage. And so what Joel 3 does is it casts a vision for us and gives us an imagination formed by the completion of God's purpose, this telos. And he does this to reorient our lives to faithful obedience so that we're not formed by social, racial, ethnic, political commitments or other affiliations. Joel knows the pressure in any human society at any time of whatever race, of whatever ethnic group, of whatever political persuasion is that those become the things that form us. And Joel's calling for something else. So how does he do this? He does it by clarifying who God is and what God's up to even in the midst of locusts and drought and judgment. Now why, why would Joel get theological? I mean, that's precise theology, making God clear. That's what theology is. Why would Joel go all theological? You know, he didn't go um, weather patterns or he didn't go biology. Why did he go theology? Smart man, he's making a choice here. Why did he do it? Because without the person and plan of God, so just try to hear this, without the person and plan of God, words like protection and assurance and shelter in the storm, they're just rhetoric. If there's not a specific and reliably consistent God who lies behind those words and who is consistently and reliably in covenant with his people, then Joel's words or any other prophetic words, they don't matter. They don't count for anything. This is why I, I'm, I so wish that this could become for you an imagination for the specificity of Christianity and the particularity of Jesus without it becoming a part of our, you know, sort of greater mean societal argument. Look, without the specificity of a triune God, the world's one true creator and Lord, there's no hope for anybody. 
So please hear me. We don't do anybody any favors when we think we're engaging more kindly in our cultural debate by backing off on the specificity of the one true God that doesn't help anybody. I mean, look at me. We are left to ourselves if that's not true. And then let's, well, then I guess let's fight, right? If we're left to ourselves, of course nations fight, tribes fight, ethnicities fight. They always have since the beginning of time. But what if we're not left to ourselves? What Joel, being a good prophet, is trying to tell us is that we're never left to ourselves. But there is this reliably consistent God. That the theological, the big theological word for that is um, immutable. It's this reliably consistent God who lies behind all this. And the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament picks up on this prophetic work of helping us get specific about God when he writes, nothing in all creation is hidden from God. So today's news feed, not hidden from God. The dearest thoughts of your mind, meditations of your heart, not hidden from God. Everything the writer of Hebrews says is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so that's the kind of prophetic reality that brings us to this passage in Joel. If you notice in your bulletins, the reality of the valley of decision. And it's important to note here that the valley of decision is not where God calls human beings together to make a decision about him. It's that humankind is called together and God makes a decision about our decisions. God makes a a statement, a, a judgment, you might say. We have to give an account for what it is that we really want. And this is why these three words of Jesus have always been so powerful. Come, follow me. Right? If, you're, if, if you represent to me a room full of options, and Cindy's the Lord, and she says, come follow me, I, that is a highly specific thing to ask me to do. It means I have to gently but carefully say no to every other option. Are you, are you catching this? This is the specificity of the New Testament in the person and work of God in Christ. This is why Jesus said, seek, what's the next word? First, the kingdom of God. Make the kingdom of God your North Star, the orienting imagination of your life. Make the kingdom of God that which pulls together and zips up all the various aspects of what it means to be human. Because see, when that happens, then that just naturally and easily sloughs off other things once that core decision has been made. Some of you probably know the author Peter Kreeft, who's written a great deal on suffering and um, ideas like that. He wrote a book called Heaven, in which he proposes three questions of ultimate importance for our decisions. First, what can I know? Second, what can I do? And third, for what may I hope? And Kreef suggests three answers. That you can know the truth, and that you can do the good, and you can hope for joy. But Kreef presses on, and this is where I think he's most helpful. 
Because Kreef says that he's aware that there are also important desires that underlie these answers. That is to say, we must become the kind of person who would want to know the truth. But that's really hard if you're committed to Boko Haram. And that's really hard if you're committed to a right-wing Republican point of view or a left-wing Democratic point of view. That is really hard. And the truth of it is most people don't make it. They remain committed to these social things that, that end up constructing our lives. You have to actually want to know the truth. And you have to want to do the good. And you have to want to pursue a joyful life. And so this is what put before Joel and puts before us this challenge. The challenge is our current habituated desires. It's these habituated desires that orient and focus and give meaning to our lives, really, not what we say. This is what really gives meaning to our lives. So that the unavoidable decision that each of us must face and live with for all of eternity is, what kind of person do we choose to become? And God has given us the freedom and responsibility and grace to make that choice. This is what we read in our gospel reading this morning. Levi, come follow me. I have not come to call the righteous, and the, the, you know, here the sort of supposed righteous, those who think they're righteous, but I've come to call those who are missing the mark, come follow me. And Levi rose and followed. But now just think of your reading in the New Testament over all your life. And for many of you, you've been reading the New Testament a long time. So just picture Levi who becomes Matthew, leaving everything that oriented his life, his Jewishness, uh, the, maybe the greed or lust for money that underlied his um, being a tax collector. Just think of all the things that could have animated his imagination and him leaving that, following Jesus. Got it? Now picture the rich young ruler. He walks away. Or those that Jesus typifies when he asks them to come follow them and they, you know, they all start to make excuses. Remember that passage? Well, Lord, I just bought some property. Oh, I just got a new business. I just got married. Remember? Just picture this. This is the reality of the real human heart. And this gets especially hard because we live in a day when repentance is little valued. That's not really valued in our culture. What's valued in our culture is fulfill your desires of whatever kind. Now, can you see how those two things stand in stark contrast? Because the one assumes, uh, in the words of David Brooks, you know, the famous New York Times columnist, he's written a new book called Character. And in this book, I think he helps us see why fulfilling our desires is one very distinct path and questioning our desires, which is the heart of repentance, these are very different paths. Right? They're very, very different paths. Brooks tries to help us get at this by writing, we used to think that we were splendidly endowed, but also deeply flawed. Now we think we're good on the inside and that you should follow your passions. You should trust your desires. You should be true to yourself so that that now becomes the highest good. Yet what Joel's trying to say is how we respond to God's work in the world and God's work in our life has genuine consequences. 
Tom Wright in his book on the end times uh, called Surprised by Hope says that when human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to that which is not God, they progressively cease to not reflect the image of God. So continuing down this road, refusing all whispering of good news, all prompting to turn and go the other way, all signposts to God's love, then after death, they become at last, by their own effective choice, beings that were once human, but are now not. Look, you don't have to be a genius theologian. God says, come follow me, or we baptize our own desires, and that becomes our life. And this is the way Lewis saw it in The Great Divorce. You make that choice, and one leads you to God ever closer for all of eternity, and the other one just leads you on that bus further and further and further away from God and each other and your true self that was meant to be human in the image of God not to be routinely dehumanized. So as Beth drew our attention to earlier, Joel sees God, though, coming onto this scene and with a heart to put life back together. But the way he puts human life back together is judgment. It's justice, meaning it's God's verdict. Just think of it as it's God's mind on the deal. God sees this other path, and, and so his judgment, his justice is just simply okay, now I'm going to tell you what's really real, and I'm going to enforce my way. So in this passage in Joel, the nations are judged for their mistreatment of Israel. Now, I know this is, this is hard for us to hear these things. When you hear Israel, you cannot picture the modern-day nation-state, and you cannot picture people fighting over building houses on a given space or not, and this is not racial. When you hear the word Israel and the prophets, you need to just always insert the people of God, the chosen people of God. And so the nations, the others, are judged because in harming Israel, they're working against God's purposes. See, they're fulfilling their desires to harm this person, this people, and in so doing, they're working against God's purposes. Israel is judged for their failure as God's people. So here's what the notion of judgment does to us, or for us, that I think is very useful today. The notion of judgment, of discreteness, of God having a mind on things and, and speaking his mind, this makes us know that there is a way that things are. I mean, if you believe in a creator God, then there is a way that things are. And then... This then just naturally rules out some attitudes and some actions and some words as out of bounds. But here's one of the most spine-shivering theological ideas there are. We're free for now. We're free to act as if it's not so that there is a way that things are. For now, we're free. But in the end, humanity's called to this valley of decision and God makes a decision about our decisions. And what the third chapter of Joel tells us is that when this happens, that God's judgment in the end is a saving, healing, restorative justice. It's really just simply the completing of his original plan for creation, bringing his telos about. 
So Joel began with a call to repent, to rend our hearts, and he ends with an assurance of forgiveness and hope in the ultimate completion of God's purposes. He depicts this final hope by saying Edom, Israel's most tenacious enemy, or Egypt, the icon of their biggest spiritual defeat, are not gonna have the last word. That the soil will heal from the devastation of the locusts. Water will seep lavishly into the parched soil. Spiritual healing will come to their hearts and the Lord will be with them. But here's the problem of our news feeds. This is the problem of, you know, sort of popular bar theology or street theology. Uh, this is the problem of cable news, at least the challenge. I'm, I'm not putting those things down. They just have a challenge in them. And this challenge, I think, is stated well by Walter Brueggemann, who said, yeah, this good news you just heard from Joel, the gospel is fiction when judged by the powers. When judged by the empire, the gospel is fiction. But the empire is fiction when judged by the gospel. Someday, something is going to be shown to have been a fiction. And so the invitation always of prophets is to decide. You know, Peter is sort of a prophet in the New Testament, 2 Peter 3. Peter latches onto this and says, you have to understand that in the last days scoffers will come, saying, where is this coming he promised? Where is this fulfillment of God's purposes? Everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But Peter says now sort of pastorally, but the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He's just patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The day will come that will show something to be a fiction and it's gonna appear like a thief unexpectedly. The heavens will disappear with the roar and the earth and everything that has been done in it will be laid bare. And now Peter becomes an evangelist sort of goes from prophet to pastor to evangelist. And so here Peter the evangelist saying, since everything will be destroyed in this way, that is to say everything associated with that alternative idea is going to be destroyed in this way, well then what kind of people ought you to be? He answers his own question saying, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God, making every effort to be found spotless blameless, and at peace with God. Now, as we have a quiet moment, maybe you want to think about the God who makes decisions about us and our habituated desires and the decisions that comes from them. And maybe this morning you realize that you have some business you need to do with God. Or for others of you, maybe there's an issue in your life in which you need to receive the quiet, confident hope of God.